Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 108. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this episode on March 5th, 2023, in Austin, Texas. We are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. First off, a brief item of business, call it an announcement, for those of you listening in something close to real time. On April 11th, 2023, I'll be in Washington, D.C. for an evening, and I'll have some spare time. If any Washington-area listeners want to do a meetup, get a beer, something like that, send me a note at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com or through the website or by direct message on Twitter. If I get a few takers, I'll find a place probably fairly convenient to the DuPont Circle area where I'll be staying and ink it into the calendar. I hope we can do it. When last we left Roger Williams, he'd arrived at Boston, been offered the important job of teacher at the Boston Church, and turned it down with somewhat less than his usual personal charm. The Boston Church was not separated from the Anglican Church, and Williams said that he durst not officiate an unseparated people. We discussed the internal logic of separatism up to this point in episode 106, Introduction to Puritan Theology, which you would benefit from listening to before this one. John Winthrop, governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, was sufficiently troubled by Williams, whom he personally liked, to write a response in a tract titled Reasons to Prove a Necessity of Reformation from the Corruptions of Antichrist, which hath defiled the Christian churches, and yet without absolute separation from them, as if they were no churches of Christ. Winthrop, however, was no theologian. He was the governor of a colony chartered at the sufferance of King Charles I and did not have the luxury of following the logic of separation to its relentless conclusion, as Roger Williams would eventually do. He knew that the Boston church was practically separated, even if avowedly not so. There were no Anglican bishops in North America, and Bishop Laud's High Commission had no realistic ability to send its agents or extend its writ across the Atlantic. In the early 1630s, at least, nobody examined how the Massachusetts Puritans worshipped, or what their ministers preached, or whether they ever did anything in accordance or not in accordance with the requirements of Anglican liturgy. But, and this is a huge but, Formal separation would attract ecclesiastical and royal attention where it was not wanted. Winthrop could not risk the eye of Mordor suddenly looking to Boston. For if that happened, it would put the Massachusetts Bay Colony Charter at risk, and it was his job to protect it. As long as the Puritans were on the run in the mother country, Winthrop needed Massachusetts to remain a backwater, out of sight, and out of mind. Backwater as Massachusetts was, Salem was the backwater of the backwater. It was the oldest surviving settlement within the jurisdiction of the Bay Colony, and it was also the poorest. More or less nobody from the Winthrop fleet had settled there, and the other wealthier towns looked down on it. Their leader, John Endicott, was as close to separatist as one could do and remain one of Winthrop's assistants. Recall that it was Endicott 
who in 1628 had torn down the Maypole at Marymount and dispersed the men Thomas Morton had left behind when Miles Standish and a detachment from Plymouth had rousted them earlier that year. The people of Salem, poor as they were, had followed Endicott and considered themselves to be purer in their still unseparated church than the other churches in the bay. When the Winthrop fleet had arrived in 1630, they had denied the Lord's Supper to its passengers on the grounds that they were not in covenant of worship at the Salem Church. As it happened, the minister of the Salem Church, the Reverend Francis Higginson, had died recently. The Salem Church offered Williams, who had turned down Boston, the position of teacher. In John Barry's words, Williams' natural charm, the sweetness of his spirit, his biblical scholarship, the logic with which he offered exegesis and explanation and the intensity of his conviction, won him admirers. He was quickly at home. And, of course, the Salem congregation must have known that hiring Williams would annoy Boston, which would have suited them just fine. The Boston authorities were indeed annoyed. On April 12th, perhaps only two weeks after Williams had reached Salem, the Court of Assistants, that is the governor and his official advisors, met in Boston. Endicott, the only assistant from Salem, wasn't there. The court wrote Endicott that it had marveled that the Salem Church would choose Williams without advising them. They then suggested to Endicott that the Salem Church forbear to proceed with Williams' appointment until the matter could be discussed. But the court's suggestion came with a threat. Endicott had gotten into some fisticuffs with a man named Thomas Dexter, apparently over money, and the court said it would put Endicott on trial for the assault, the punishment for which might be severe, or not. Endicott seems to have gotten the message. The Salem Church withdrew its offer to Williams, and Endicott received a slap on the wrist from the court. At some point that summer, certainly before the middle of August 1631, Roger Williams and his now quite pregnant wife Mary moved to the separate and separated colony of Plymouth Plantation. There, the Williams family would live under the protection of William Bradford and Edward Winslow, with whom long-standing and even remotely attentive listeners are very familiar. Now let's go to Barry's account of their early days there. Quote, In his late 20s, Williams had spent his life so far under patrons. First Coke, then schoolmasters, then Sir William Masham, for whose family he had served as a private minister. Soon after his arrival in Plymouth, his first child, a daughter, was born. It was time to make a home. It was time to make his own way. Now, rather than attempt to support himself as a minister, he made a home by digging in, rooting himself. He became a farmer, digging in the soil, husbanding cattle, raising squash and Indian corn. He was finally fully independent, free of any responsibilities to anyone except himself, his wife, and his God. His energy went into fulfilling those responsibilities and weaving himself into the fabric of all that went on about him in Plymouth. He was welcomed. He was a social and sociable creature. Two governors, Edward Winslow and William Bradford, praised and befriended him. Bradford called him a man godly and zealous. 
having many precious parts. Winslow described him as a man lovely in his carriage, spoke of the love I bear to him and his, and even called him the sweetest soul I ever knew. He became active in the church. Every Sunday and sometimes during the week, he would prophesy. And on Sundays, he and Pastor Ralph Smith would propound questions and then explore them in conversive debate. The church never offered him a formal or paid position, possibly because Plymouth authorities did not want to offend their Massachusetts counterparts, but he became an unpaid assistant pastor. Even years later, after he'd fallen far from favor, Bradford recalled that his teaching was well approved, for the benefit of which I still bless God and am thankful to him, even for his sharpest admonitions and reproofs, so far as they agreed with truth. Back to me. It was a measure of William's reputation during these years at Plymouth that he and John Winthrop maintained a lively and supportive correspondence. Only one of those letters survives today, but we know from other footprints in the sand that they respected each other. The much younger Williams wrote approvingly of various decisions of the Bay authorities, including their determination that one could not serve as both a church officer and a civilian magistrate. Winthrop visited Plymouth at least once during those years and attended a Sunday service there during which Williams prophesied. Winthrop mentioned the service in his journal, but without any note of disapproval. While at Plymouth, Williams turned to the matter of saving the souls of the Indians of the area and made mention of his desire to do so in that one surviving letter to Winthrop. Now, long-standing and attentive listeners know that the sponsored English settlements in North America had embarked with the stated purpose of converting Indians, among other goals, the pilgrims had gone to Patuxet as refugees and had not made much of saving souls, but the Virginia Company had raised money on that ambition. Apart from a few feeble efforts, all ended with Opakankana's War in 1622, the English and the Chesapeake had accomplished almost nothing after the first much ballyhooed conversion of Pocahontas. The Purins of Massachusetts had made bigger promises with no doubt greater sincerity in the moment, but in their first three or four years had done virtually nothing. Roger Williams was the first Englishman in New England to make a real go of it. His great advantage was that he did not have to prove his success to any investor. He was his own man. Williams started with the proposition that becoming a Christian was hard work and that it required a deep understanding of what Christianity meant. He therefore made no attempt to convert Indians to whom he could not speak fluently. So his first step was to learn the Algonquin language spoken in the region. He began trading in the region, traveling through Cape Cod and south into Narragansett Bay. He sold English manufactured items like axes, knives, tools, mirrors, and clothes. They paid with furs and wampum which we discussed in our characteristic detail in Fathoms of Wampum back in episode 99, as Apple numbers them. Williams would make many friends among the tribes in the region and learn their language to considerable fluency. His first book, A Key into the Language of America, which he would 
published in London in 1643, remains valuable to scholars today. That book and William's other writings were not merely explorations of Indian linguistics, but also their culture and practices. This led Williams, who never closed his eyes to the evidence before him or shied away from conclusions that were uncomfortable, to some remarkably modern insights and arguments that would again isolate him from the movers and shakers in New England. They would also save his life. One of the things that Williams learned was that the Indians did not live in an undeveloped wilderness. They gardened the forest, managing it very much to their own purpose, with a controlled application of fire. Their intentional burning of the forest floor cleared away underbrush, which, in Barry's words, eliminated competition for nutrition in the soil and for sunlight, and opened the way to thick, straight, and impossibly tall pines to climb high, upwards of 100 feet. Oak, maple, cherry, and other trees also abounded. At the same time, it encouraged the growth of live flora, which increased the deer population and eliminated dry twigs, which helped Indians stalk prey. The natives, Williams observed, hunted all the country over, and for the expedition of their hunting voyages, they burnt up all the underwoods in the country once or twice a year, and therefore as noblemen in England possessed great parks, and the king great forests in England only for their game, and no man might lawfully invade their property, so might the natives challenge the like propriety in the country here. Back to me. Others had noticed this. Edward Winslow had written that every sachem knoweth how far the bounds and limits of his own country extendeth, and that is his own property inheritance. In this circuit, whoever hunteth, if they kill any venison, bring him his fee. The great sachems or kings know their own bounds and limits of land as well as the rest. But Williams had worked for Sir Edward Coke, the greatest scholar of the English common law. He knew that the English basis for claiming land in America was that it was unused and undeveloped. Unlike others who had noticed the same Indian practices, Williams had the courage to acknowledge the obvious legal problem, that the English king could not grant land that he did not own. In turn, no planter claiming ownership of land in North America on the basis of a royal grant could maintain that claim unless he purchased it fairly from its rightful owners, the Indians. Williams shared his observations with the pilgrims who did not actually laugh him out of town. They asked him to write a treatise explaining his position. So he did. Sadly for us, the treatise, which was apparently a doozy, does not survive. We only know some of what it must have said based on the surviving reactions to it intellectual shadows, if you will. He apparently traced the history of royal grants in America, the evidence at hand at the time those grants were made, and declared, among other things, that King Charles had told, quote, a solemn public lie. Even in Plymouth, that was a bit much in the early 1630s. While he made many friends, he'd set off an extraordinary controversy, 
As Barry put it, controversy is rarely welcome in any community. Nowhere was controversy less welcome than in Puritan New England. You can say that again. Bradford now wrote that Williams was very unsettled in judgment, falling into some strange opinions, and from opinion to practice, which caused some controversy between the church and him, and to the end, some discontent on his part. It should be said that Williams' core position, that the English should pay Indians for the land they used, was not as earth-shattering as it sounds. Many of the planters in New England had indeed reached accommodations with the Indians, which would have met Williams' legal arguments. It was, as usual, the judgy way in which he made his arguments and the anti-royal framing of them that provoked so much concern. The pressure even in Plymouth grew, and Williams had grown disenchanted with the insufficiency of separation even at the church in Plymouth. When members of that church returned to England for one reason or another and attended services at the Anglican Church, otherwise known as the Church of the Antichrist, they were not tossed out in Plymouth or even forced to repent for their corruption. In the relentlessly logical mind of Roger Williams, that was bad. So at some point in late 1633, Williams requested permission to leave the Plymouth Church, Remember, churches were formed by covenants of worship that could not be broken unilaterally and moved this family back to Salem. Leave was granted, so he did, along with some number of his followers from Plymouth. Bradford sent a note ahead to the Massachusetts magistrates suggesting they keep an eye on him. The Salem church offered Williams an unofficial role as teacher, and he settled in there, building a following. Duly warned, Winthrop paid attention to Williams when he challenged the idea that the clergy of the various churches in the Bay should gather, as they had regularly done, to debate points of theology. Williams and the minister of the Salem Church, Samuel Skelton, argued that such meetings were inappropriate, pushing the churches toward a conformity that compromised the spirit of independence of the respective congregations. Winthrop worried, with more than a little justification, that Williams would disrupt the essential conformity of the bay. He wrote to Plymouth to request a copy of the treatise that Williams had written explaining his curious views of Indian property rights and so forth. Winthrop and other assistants read it and summoned Williams to appear at the next session of the general court. He was to be censured for he had, in effect, been tried and found guilty in absentia. The question was, what would be the sanction? The leading theologians in the Bay, including such important new arrivals as John Cotton and Thomas Hooker, both of whom will appear again in our stories, and even John Endicott, debated Williams. Their goal was not to punish him, for Williams had a following and they had no interest in making him a martyr. They may well have had less cynical reasons, too. Williams was a kind man, respected even by most of his adversaries, and they would much prefer that he recant and conform. The Puritans were authoritarian in this, insofar as they wanted everybody in their community, at least, to appear to believe the same things. That authoritarianism, however, wasn't political in the sense that Winthrop didn't worry about the Bay's civil authority per se. 
Rather, it derived from the belief that compliance with their national covenant with God required it. That is why they banished dissenters, but not before doing everything they could to persuade them to conform. Williams had known Cotton and Hooker in England. He'd ridden with them to one of the early meetings that established the Massachusetts Bay Colony's charter. Whatever he felt in his heart, this time Williams bent. He offered to burn his book and let that be the end of it. Since it had not been published per se, but had been written at the request of the authorities in Plymouth, it had not been distributed outside of governing circles. No harm had been done. Williams met privately with Winthrop and was never sanctioned. This would be one of the last times that he would compromise his opinions. At one level, it's a measure of Williams' credibility that he was not expelled in this instance. Massachusetts was so intent on preserving its conforming, God-fearing society that it banished people fairly regularly and not just for preaching heterodox theology. In 1630 and 1631, Massachusetts had expelled 14 people, almost 2% of its population. This was giving it a reputation of sorts, some of it fanned by banished people who came back to England nursing resentment. Also, as shipping and trade accelerated in the early 1630s, more and more regular old Anglicans were coming to Boston for a short time, would naturally go to church, and would not be happy in their holy experience. Massachusetts was beginning to get a reputation for zealotry, which, it must be said, was increasingly deserved. It also must be said that the zealotry did not come from John Winthrop. Rather, it was a new problem that he had to manage. The core notions of Puritanism, the quest to commune directly with God, the belief that one could detect probable visible saints, the view of the corrupted old churches and their hierarchies of bishops and archbishops as tools of the Antichrist, the commitment to covenants of grace and worship and so forth, naturally led to zealotry, as in many fervent communities, there would be those in the bay who would seek to be holier than thou, which then was not suffused with irony as it is today, at least in my circles. At the same time, Bishop Laud and his high commission were cracking down even harder than they had when Williams departed in late 1630. Let's go to John Barry, quote, Determined to extirpate, to rip out branch and root, all religious nonconformity, Laud widened and thickened his web of spies. Homes of Puritans in England were raided and letters were seized. Other letters were intercepted, copied and delivered, and recipients spied upon. People feared putting anything in writing. Even those who had proved their loyalty to the king found themselves out of favor if they crossed Laud. Sir Robert Heath had championed the royal prerogative in disputes with Parliament and Coke over the Petition of Right. Charles had rewarded him by making him Chief Justice of Common Pleas, but he was a Calvinist, unhappy over Laud's direction of the Church of England, and Laud convinced Charles to dismiss him. Then Laud began defining offenses against the church as treason, which brought defendants into the Star Chamber, 
where defendants could neither have an attorney nor refuse to answer even self-incriminating questions. When Williams had assisted Koch there, few cases had involved politics. The court had pursued equity. Now Charles and Law had exploited its lack of common law procedural safeguards to make it a tool of power. Back to me. Several things might be said about this. The first is that the zeal of Massachusetts, which certainly stands out in our fairly short American history, was not unique in that moment. Bishop Laud and Charles I pursued conformity, different conformity, but still conformity, zealously in England, but they were not at least much engaged in the calamitous Thirty Years' War, which was consuming Central Europe in fire and blood, also in the cause of religion. The second thing is that it is at this moment that the Star Chamber, which had been around since at least 1487, earned its infamous reputation. It would survive only until 1641 and would be brought down because Laud and Charles I had turned it into the instrument of oppression for which it's known today. If one Googles the term Star Chamber, it will return about 226 million hits. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that most of the people who use the term online don't know its origin, which puts you ahead of many millions of other people. Finally, notice the attributes that John Barry identified as particularly offensive, that the accused did not have a right to an attorney and could be forced to testify to their own incrimination. One can easily see their echoes in the Fifth and Sixth Amendments to our own Constitution, and in 21st century criticisms of pseudo-judicial procedures that deny our right to an attorney and require testimony against oneself. Not surprisingly, Puritan emigration accelerated. This was intensely irritating to Laud, who had bothered to build cases against all these people who would then flee before they could be properly convicted in the star chamber and tossed in the literal clink. At the same time, Ferdinando Gorges, who claimed right to the bay, Thomas Morton, the lord of misrule, and other Anglican royalists brought claims against Massachusetts to the Privy Council. The Privy Council created a commission for regulating plantations, and named William Laud as its chair. He soon imposed a requirement that all emigres swear an oath of allegiance to the king, affirm the crown's supremacy over the church, and produce affidavits from two judges and a minister that they were loyal. All services at sea were to be conducted using the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. Laud pushed the Privy Council to order Matthew Craddock, who was the titular leader of the Bay Company in England, to surrender its charter. This, Craddock said, he could not do because, as you all know, it was in Boston. Rumors began to spread that the English were preparing a military expedition to Massachusetts to seize the charter and impose its own governor. In 1634, the Court of Assistants commissioned the construction of a sea fort, a floating artillery battery in Boston Harbor. Of course, they could not admit to building defenses against their own country because that would be, you know, treason. So they justified it as prudent defense against potential incursions of the nearby French and Dutch. 
Regardless, this is the first moment that I know of in which English settlers in North America built defenses against their own country. It was a precedent that would echo in the next century. Of course, none of this made the Bay Colony any less zealous or any less demanding of loyalty and conformity, which were intertwined. Among other things, the Bay leaders demanded their own oath of loyalty. It was assumed that the church members, visible saints who had demonstrated through narrative and conduct that they were worthy, would remain loyal. But all adults who were not freemen, church members, had to swear to submit to the authority of the governor and other magistrates. Two refusals to so swear brought banishment. Absent from these loyalty oaths, Barry writes, was any mention of loyalty to the King of England. The omission escaped the notice of no one. Now, recall that the right to vote had been limited to church members. Further, the colony had made it increasingly difficult to become a church member. So the franchise, such as it was, concentrated in the most zealous residents of the Bay at a time when the looming threat from England catalyzed even more zealotry. In the governor's election of 1634, the freemen voted out John Winthrop from the governor's office and replaced him with Thomas Dudley, the deputy governor. Dudley was hardcore. Back to Barry, quote, Electing Dudley was a move toward inflexibility. He was known as a hard man. In England, he'd loaned corn at 33% interest for a single harvest season. In New England, he had attacked Winthrop's leniency, attacked him for showing too much mercy, attacked him for having too much of his Christian charity, attacked him even for delaying the enforcement of a banishment order. Winthrop had done so because expelling the man in winter might have led to his death. No freeman expected Dudley to show charity, and his election indicated that a majority of them did not want him to. Back to me. During all of this, Roger Williams kept his head down in Salem. He was troubled by the loyalty oath, not because it failed to require loyalty to the king. After all, Williams had privately accused Charles I of being a liar, but because it mixed church by being an oath and state. But he kept his opinions to himself, or at least to people who did not write them down in surviving documents, and devoted himself to Salem, which remained psychologically, even if not legally, separate from the rest of the bay, and his true love, the Indians. Now to Barry to close out this episode, quote, Williams now considered himself fluent enough in Algonquin to say, I could debate with them in great measure in their own language. His fluency was noticed. One report to England noted that he and a special good intent in doing good to their souls hath spent much time in attaining their language, wherein he is so good a proficient that he can speak to their understanding and he to theirs, much loving and respecting him for his love and counsel. It is hoping that he may be an instrument of good amongst them. He desired to expose them to Christ, but it was not only that. Intellectual curiosity and anthropologist curiosity drove him forward as well. He wanted to learn all about them, to understand how they grew corn, how they raised their children, how they hunted, how they traveled, how they fished, how they governed themselves, 
how they worshipped. To do this, he chose in his words to lodge with them in their filthy, smoky holes, which required of him discipline and a painful, patient spirit. It helped that the Indians knew him as a public speaker, both at Plymouth and Salem, and therefore they perceived him to be an English sachem. He also traveled throughout southern New England. New Englanders had so few horses that most people, including Winthrop, moved through the country by sea where possible, or on foot when necessary. The most common vessel was the shallop, a boat of 14 to 20 feet that could be sailed or rowed and required several men to handle it. Also in use were pinnaces, a larger vessel capable of an extended ocean voyage. Williams, lacking the resources to own either, got about by canoe, sometimes likely with a sail rigged. If too small to carry much cargo, it could access the shallowest marshes and streams. Canoeing even in protected bays meant confronting sometimes breaking surf and routinely strong currents, heavy swells, whitecaps, and wind. Occasional exposure to open ocean increased the danger exponentially. Handling a canoe required skill. Williams became adept and would use a canoe for the next 50 years. That required physical labor, hard labor, muscle-numbing labor, skin blistering labor. Even when the canoe was rigged with sail and the wind was sufficient, sail was useless for surf and marshes and streams. And when wind was not sufficient or a sail was not rigged, covering not simply a mile or two but tens of miles in a day meant digging a paddle into the water, stroke after stroke after stroke after stroke. Doing this day after day after day after day hardened the hands built the forearms, the triceps, the shoulders, the back, the legs. To do that in a summer, the air thick with humidity, exposed to the sun hours at a time, and in winter, the air so cold that breathing sent sharp, tiny stabs into the lungs, the spray from the sea freezing to hair, required great physical hardiness. This would have given Williams a hard, powerful body, such labor would also have given him a sensibility of his own physicality, unusual, compared with those ministers, including all other Massachusetts clergy, supported financially by their congregations. Those who labor as Williams did, when they also have intellect and education, often develop both great confidence in themselves and some disdain for those who do no physical labor. Years later, Williams would show such disdain, writing, I know what it is to study, to preach, to be an elder, to be applauded, and yet what it is to tug at the oar, to dig with a spade and plow, to labor and travel day and night amongst English, amongst barbarians. Events now brought him and his evolving beliefs back into the arena. Back to me. With that teaser, this is a good place to end for today. Unless my muse determines otherwise, I've got a couple of interesting sidebars in mind which will pop out at some point, we'll return to the extraordinary story of Roger Williams next time. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. Your emails have been very encouraging. Please keep them coming. 
You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. And please do me the great favor of giving the podcast a great rating on Apple and following me on Twitter and the Facebook page for the podcast. Also, don't forget to tell me whether you could do a meetup in Washington on April 11th. Until next time.